It was Saturday, April 15, 1989, and a horrified English public watched on as an FA Cup semi-final fixture between Liverpool and Nor- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nottingham Forest ended in tragedy. The Hillsborough disaster would claim 96 lives and lead to a national reckoning that would reshape English sport and society. Only 35 miles to the north, the Chapeltown Road headquarters of the Rugby Football League would soon be swept into the maelstrom as the weight of one of the blackest days in English soccer bore down on any sport caught in its wake. This is part two of Chapeltown Road, the 28th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm in cloud nine, part two of Chapeltown Road. Really good reaction to part one. I think that there have been a lot of people that were hanging out for more coverage from the English side of things, so appreciate all the kind words about part one. Yeah, I mean, our English listenership is ever-growing, and we love talking to our English friends, especially the northern ones, sorry, southerners, but uh, you also copped a bit this week as well, mate. I copped a lot, actually. I don't think we've ever copped as much heat as we got for my mispronunciation of a certain English uh, rugby league town in the north. I'm going to try to say it right now, uh, Witness. I wasn't talking about the Witness uh, situation. That was bad. I mean, the Chris (laughs) Mullen backlash. (laughs) Yeah, so apologies to all the Chris Mullen stands. We even got some Christian Leitner heat, which I wasn't (laughs) expecting. So point taken. But I will say... My mispronunciation sparked some similar debate online as, is it Widnes? Is it Widnes? It seems like there's regional variations. And I'm just saying my mispronunciation is one of those. And if that region is localized entirely within my study, well, so be it. So <laughs> well, I mean, give me a break. They've all got their own pronunciations anyway. You've got seven accents in a six-mile radius, so it's a bit rich coming from the old English people. But um, <laughs> I had a good chuckle reading the backlash anyway, mate. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say at the start is that in the first part of this chapter, I didn't really set up the name of this chapter and why it was called Chapeltown Road. So I wanted to do that now. It's just because I didn't realize until starting this research that that was the name of the street where the Rugby Football League were located. And it was used in the same way that Phillip Street was used here. So cool. And I just thought that was so cool when I found that out. So that explains why this chapter is called Chapeltown Road. Um, so with this part, we're going to continue our exploration of English football leading up to Super League. And... Again, like last week, it's not a comprehensive history of English football in the 80s or the early 90s. So think of this as a snapshot. So we're going to look at some on-field stuff and off-field issues as well and get you to the point of Super League arriving in 1995. There's a lot missing and 
One of those omissions I wanted to specifically address at the start, which is the kind of socio-political climate of the north of England in the 1980s. And the, you know, Margaret Thatcher policies and the pit closures, that was a big deal in the north. And I mean, I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole of researching it because I was just like, oh my God, am I really going to have to spend weeks looking into British Labour history (laughs) as well as all this rugby league stuff? Yeah. So what I've done is just basically left that side of things largely out of the picture because I don't know how much of an influence it had, what exactly that influence was. My hypothesis is that if you are trying to get your sport out of financial problems and are reliant on local sponsors and supporters, when that's happening in an area experiencing unprecedented economic downturn and the collapse of the dominant local industry, that's going to be bad for your efforts. It's going to make things more difficult. So that's my baseline hypothesis. I'm actually trying to recruit some more learned explanation on the link between the politics of the 1980s and rugby league. So stay tuned for that. Do you want another 40 chapter series or? (laughs) Uh, But look forward to that. For tonight, we're going to focus on rugby league. We'll keep it to the key subject at hand. You and I have discussed previously the similarities between the north of England and the people from Newcastle. I think we described it as uh, Newcastle, Australia being the north of England with a beach. Exactly the same people, exactly the same industries, the same economic downturns and the same probably 10 years later than the British ones. But yeah, the similarities are huge. And it's also the similarity in rugby league mindset. And we're going to explore that a bit, you know, towards the end of the episode. But researching this chapter, it's been really striking to me how many similarities there are in rugby league men in England and rugby league men in Australia. So in part one of this chapter, we looked at the international scene and we looked at the problems internally within the game in England that led to a situation like the 1982 Kangaroo Tour. What we're going to do in this chapter is look at how the 80s progressed, largely from a domestic standpoint. So looking at the English competition and how it was faring by the time Super League came around. So the early 80s saw the same situation in English Rugby League that had been happening for a while with clubs perpetually going broke or nearly going broke and appeals from supporters and appeals for handouts from the league. The stuff that had You know, they'd been in these same cycles for a number of years. And so not much had changed with the coming of the new decade. And let's not forget that they didn't have Pokey's money to siphon off and prop up incompetence either over there. So they're doing it on half the smell of an oily rag. Yeah, exactly. So they're reliant on gate takings. Sponsorship was starting to become more commonplace. There was a small amount of TV money from, you know, embracing having their games on TV. But yeah, there was no. Nothing like pokies to kind of keep the wheels turning. And I mean, even here in Sydney where we had them, clubs were going broke. So it was just a tough racket to be in. And uh, the situation was difficult in England. But at the same time, you are seeing some efforts at expansion in this period that suggested, you know, maybe like an, an optimistic future. And so biggest of all was London. So in 1980, Fulham joined the league, and this had actually been the first London team since an earlier one in 1937, a team called uh, Streatham and Mitcham, who uh, were 26 matches into their second season 
when they went bust. So it had been a long time since there'd been any presence in the capital. And this was seen as a really like hopeful, you know, glimpse at what the future could be. It amazes me that Fulham's so big that the Premier League side does well. We've got this expansion. It's it's about the same size as Chatswood. It's just a suburb. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned the Premier League side and the Fulham Rugby League Club had grown out of the Fulham Soccer Club. So at this point, you're seeing some issues with soccer in England, which is going to be a significant part of our story at the end of this episode. So clubs were seeing the benefit of expanding their operations and they thought that starting a rugby league club could A, give them an additional source of revenue and B, generate some positivity and some family-friendly entertainment at a time where hooliganism was on the rise and soccer was uh, increasingly on the nose in British society. So with this sort of stuff happening, you can see this small window of opportunity opening up for rugby league. So it might be hard from an Australian standpoint to think of it this way, but rugby league was considered the family-friendly alternative to you know, going to a soccer match and potentially, you know, getting bashed. and <laughs> Isn't that refreshing? <laughs> and I do think that window of opportunity, like, it's probably somewhat overblown. Like, I think realistically, it was very unlikely that rugby league was ever going to be, like, you know, the dominant game in soccer areas. But I think it was a window of opportunity. And establishing that team in Fulham, which later merged into the London Broncos. So, I mean, it wasn't a straight path to success and, you know, it's ebbed and flowed, but I mean, you know, the London Broncos are back now in a reduced capacity in the mid nineties. Like it seemed that they were like a really cool team on the rise. So laying that foundation in 1980, like it hasn't set the world on fire, but you wouldn't say it's been a catastrophe or something that wasn't worth trying. I was there at the um, London Broncos v Wigan game in 2000 to see Matty Johns and uh, the Broncos towed them up <laughs> Charlton Athletics home ground. <laughs> Who did the Broncos have in their team at that point? I don't know. I think it was like Tolson Tollett and guys like that. Yeah. So as I said, they started in 1980 and that first season, you know, they had a great season, got promoted and there was a, a sense that it was going to work. You know, they got some pretty decent crowds that first year and a lot of optimistic signs. But then... You know, the second season, they didn't go as well. The crowds dwindled rapidly. And there was also a criticism that they weren't really doing much to promote the game in the South. So was it actually, you know, worth it as a venture? And this kind of highlights the policy of expansion in English rugby league at this time and probably arguably still today. So... Not long after London started, a team was introduced called Kent Invicta. So, you know, they were based in Kent. They were, you know, not in London, but, you know, miles away from rugby league territory. Uh, and they were brought in because they were going to maybe fix the promotional issues that Fulham were having, and it could be another way into the South. It's a very rugby union sounding name, though. Yeah. And, I mean, the fact that I'm sure anyone who, you know, only has a, a passing knowledge of English rugby league wouldn't have heard of Kent in Victor, will tell you that they didn't get very far. Uh, in Frank Morehouse's book, A People's Game, this uh, statement maybe says something about why. On what basis did Kent in Victor forecast their financial viability? Since for their inaugural league match, a crowd of 8,000 was forecast and 10,000 programs were printed. 
The official attendance was 1,800 and only 500 for their second home game, despite a 3,000 break-even figure being needed. Who in their right mind would travel 100 miles up the road to watch Kenton Victor? (laughs) (laughs) And along the same lines was Carlisle in Cumbria, you know, way in the north of England. So they were brought into the league in the early 80s and very soon ran into money problems themselves. They went to the league for help, but uh, as the Rugby League Review for 1982-83 puts it, when their financial affairs were examined, it was felt that at least 25 clubs would willingly have changed places with them. (laughs) Rugby League. And then maybe also leading to those economic issues in the community, they said, they've been asked to show the same resilience and determination as other club directors in these stringent times. But the league bosses went on to say that Carlisle had been brought into the league because they'd gave assurances about their financial position and the crowds they were expecting and how they were going to, you know, be a viable entity. And that kind of tells the story of English expansion. And this carries all the way through to the Wolfpack. It's kind of like, if you can pay your way or you say you can pay your way, then you're in. Like, there's no real sense of where the clubs should be or who should be in. It's like, you know, well, oh, they've got money. They want to join. So, okay, we'll let them in and we'll see what happens. They couldn't have taken a drive out there themselves and had a look around and asked a few people if they're going to turn up or they just take their word for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then almost every time it ends the same way. Like when you're admitting a team because of their forecast or the, you know, the sales pitch they put on when they're asking you to join, but you're not doing all that extra diligence. Like, it's just the same story repeating itself. But um, I don't want to, like, just single out English Rugby League for that because, I mean, I think a very similar comparison is the Western Reds in the early 90s. They were basically handed the licence when originally the ARL was only expanding by two teams, but the Western Reds put on this pitch and said that they were willing to pay for all visiting travel expenses and... They could foot those bills easily and it wouldn't be an issue. So the ARL said, okay, well, that sounds great. And of course, you know, within a year, it sent them into this crippling debt that like basically killed them as a club in three years. Rugby league, it's always a tomorrow problem. Yeah, it is. In both competitions, there's no real strategic plan as to how the competition should look. It's just who can pay their way for now you know, they can come in. But given the RFL a bit of a pass, it's like if you're sitting there and the whole thing's a house of cards anyway, and they're like, well, they can pay for themselves. Yeah, and also it's not like you have the issue of Sydney to Perth. You know, when you're going from Wigan to Carlisle, you're not requiring a five-hour flight, are you? (laughs) But just in general, the problems of expanding in Great Britain, they're all so insular and clannish, quite literally in the case of Scotland, clannish, but (laughs) Ireland, you know, they've got their own sports going on. They don't really care. They're they're like Union. The South are just like, you know, classist. They find rugby league to be for uh, simpletons. Everyone's into soccer. Down South, the working class, there's plenty of them, but they're into soccer. It's like, it's almost impossible to get a foothold. Yeah, it's hard, but it's made harder when you don't have a clear plan or you have a clear plan and then that changes every three years. (laughs) Yeah. But I will say of Carlisle, they did sputter along and were on the brink a few times, but survived through till, um, you know, the mid-90s and then they were actually going to be part of the merged Cumbrian entity that had been mooted when the Murdoch money came in. But 
that merger didn't happen and then Carlisle were gone a, a couple of years after that. I remember in the 94 Kangaroo Tour, they played a Cumbrian rep side, mm. which was really cool. Yeah, and I mean, that just shows you the difficulties of expansion in England. We're still now, we're talking about a Cumbrian presence, like, you know, one county over is a bridge <laughs> too far. You can do Canada, you can't do Cumbria. <laughs> so um, on the whole, efforts at expansion were mixed success and probably a failing mark overall. But it just gives you a sense of the continued malaise that, you know, rugby league was in in England and how difficult it was going to be to get out of that position. I wanted to go back and talk about the on-field stuff for a while. And one aspect of it that I feel is really interesting is the overturning of the ban on imports from Australia. So in the mid 70s, that pipeline was shut down when England, you know, was sick of losing blokes like Mal Reilly and Phil Lowe and Tommy Bishop, whoever else you can name, who were playing really well in the Australian comp. So England felt that they needed to shut that down. By the early 80s, though, there was a bit of a groundswell forming to overturn that ban. So on the one hand, you had the players wanting to get some of that pokey money and come over to Australia and earn some additional coin. So the Players Association were actually making a strong pitch that the ban should be overturned. At the same time, you had the 82 Kangaroo Tour and the realisation that England were well behind the ball. So I think that was the deciding outcome that allowed for that ban to be overturned. It's funny, though, uh, talking about the political landscape, in that era, they even put tariffs on their rugby league players. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the funny thing was that there was all the talk that, you know, England were going to lose all their best talent. But the traffic was almost all in the other direction, at least in that those first couple of years. So, I mean, we can, you know, think about, you know, Schofield and Ellery Hanley and Kevin Ward and others playing in the Australian comp later in the 80s. But when that ban was first overturned, it was all the big Australian players going over there that made a big splash. And I think it brought a lot of life into the English comp, as well as yeah. I think it made Australians probably a bit more excited about English football as well. Hell yeah, it was so exciting when all those cool players went over. So you saw 757 Australian players in England in the 10 years after that ban was overturned for the 83-84 season. So they're all playing like second division and stuff as well, were they? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I think because of the number of them, it probably has a mixed reputation overall. Like, for every Kenny, you're probably getting 10 bums that couldn't make an A grade team in the country, but, you know, headed over to England. So the quality was probably mixed, but the splash signings made an immediate impact. So I think the really telling one early on was Wally Lewis, who went over to Wakefield Trinity. They were in a relegation battle that it was hoped that Wally could bring them out of and he was like an instant success in terms of getting crowds and the marketing aspect of it and it probably wasn't the on-field success they were hoping so one um quote about the wally lewis experiment they just used to give the ball to them and those famous passes which temporarily convert the ball into a long-range ballistic missile often found no one worthy of taking advantage of them unless it was his own brother scott he took his brother with him i think he might have been already over there i'm not sure Right. But basically, it helped to generate interest, but it didn't save them from relegation. They didn't win a game after he left. And I mean, then you had players that did make a real impact. Like, I mean, we don't need to talk about the 85 Challenge Cup final again, but 
Kenny and Sterling, Chica Ferguson, you know, it, it was, Gino. yeah, well, yeah, that was later, of course, but, yeah, um, but yeah, so I think it was a really positive thing overall, but there was a lot of criticism of it. And, you know, were they going too far with just bringing Australians over, you know, in droves? It's almost like in the NBL, we used to get American imports out and some of them would be duds. Yeah. Because they're American, they were automatically supposed to be guns. Yeah, yeah. People would blow up. Yeah. <laughs> I can just see it happening over there in North of England. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I mean, I guess we're still seeing that today with criticism of Australian players who go over there and don't produce the goods. Hmm. But I think it's probably no coincidence that at this point in time that the Golden Boot was instituted. So you're getting all this cross-hemisphere pollination and suddenly we get this new award for crowning the world's best player. And for this section of the episode, I really want to uh, shout out Richard Della Riviere, who this came from his book, Rugby League Critical History. He gave like a really detailed history of the Golden Boot Award. That was just amazing. It was so well done and such a good read. So uh, I'd recommend that book definitely for anyone wanting to learn a bit more about English Rugby League history. So it's Rugby League, A Critical History. It covers the years 1980 through to 2013. I remember when the award was revered and then suddenly it just became Mickey Mouse overnight. Yeah, and we'll touch on all of that. But (laughs) it's kind of funny because... It's almost on Immortals grounds, like the dubious nature of the award starting and, you know, and then with the way the winners were announced and the controversy that the award would eventually engender, like it didn't even get that chance to overcome those dubious origins like the Immortals did. Yeah. So it was a an innovation by a bloke called Harry Edgar, who was the editor of Open Rugby. Great mag. And so... He'd seen the Golden Shoe, which was an award given to the the European Soccer Player of the Year, sponsored by Adidas, and he thought, well, that'd be great to get for Rugby League. So he got Adidas involved in coming up with this award, so it was called the Golden Boot. And this is the first point of order I have is, like, even the name kind of sucks. Like, it sounds like a soccer award. Like, it's no wonder Brett Kenny, when he won it, thought it was an award for goal kickers. (laughs) Yeah, it's not that rugby league specific, is it? No. So I guess everyone got the hang of it pretty quickly, but I think right from the outset there's some branding issues there. I don't know if you can bash uh, Edgar and Adidas too much for Brett Kenny misunderstanding something. (laughs) (laughs) Marketing job. (laughs) (laughs) So Kenny was the second winner, so it went to Wally Lewis first for the 1984 season. So the first award was handed out mid-1985, but that was to cover, you know, the last year. And so Kenny was the next winner. And so even though Wally Lewis got his award in 85, it's called, you know, the 84 Golden Boot goes to Wally Lewis, 85 to Brett Kenny, etc. So just in case there's any confusion. Let me ask you this, though. Think back to the problems of picking an Australian side from Australia, Queensland and the bush. Then you've got to throw in Northern England for the Golden Boot as well. How could you keep your eye on all of that? Well, this is where it starts to get Mickey Mouse already. And this is where the the way the award was given out starts to look really dubious. So Harry Edgar said he was really keen to get another country involved with the Golden Boot, and he'd love to see it promoted in France. But he found that Adidas in France was a no-go because they were committed to rugby union and they wouldn't touch rugby league in France. 
so he thought, well, Adidas New Zealand, therefore we need a New Zealand winner. So, you know, after Kenny, the next Golden Boot winner was Hugh McGann. <laughs> Harry Edgar says that everyone in Australia just thought it was Sterling's turn because Lewis and Kenny had it. But, well, yeah, it was Sterling's turn because he was on a two-year run of winning just about every award on offer and, you know, having multiple Rugby League Week perfect games, winning the 86 Clive Churchill, Rothmans, Dally M's, and, you know, just playing at the very height of football. You know, that's, I think, why it was his turn. But Edgar was saying, well, no, Hume again was, you know, he was just the best player that year. So in the end, Peter Sterling got the award as well. It was a shared golden boot that year. So did that mean that they gave it to him again and then backtracked and said, sorry, it's a shared one, or did they work it out beforehand? They worked it out beforehand. Oh, thank God. But it led to this tension between the two countries because there was a perceived arrogance from the Australian side that, you know, they just assumed that the award should always be given to an Australian. But what's Adidas thinking as a company? They're a global brand. Why would they want to rig an award with their name on it? Like yeah, well, and I don't know the logistics of it, but apparently they needed to promote the award in New Zealand, therefore you needed a New Zealand winner. So, Well, you got that huge market of 2 million people. You got to capitalise on it. And so already you're getting this controversy and you're getting the luster removed from the award somewhat. So the next year's winner was Ellery Hanley, and he got given his award at a pitch side presentation he was playing for Wests in the Sydney comp at the time he had to drive up to Newcastle to be presented with the award on the side of the field so already some of the pomp and glamour had gone out of the award Adidas was starting to lose interest probably not helped by the fact that Ellery Hanley accepted his award dressed entirely in Puma gear <laughs> And so in 1991, it was to be Gary Schofield's award. Again, there's, there's all Australians complaining that it should have gone to an Australian player. I think with Schofield, the way he was playing at that time and the way Great Britain were taking it to the Aussies, like I think in this circumstance, maybe those Australian complaints aren't as warranted as they had been in the past. It is arrogance, the fact they always think that we're the best, because they wouldn't have been looking at any other comp. No. Um, we covered it last week, how good Schofield was. Yeah, exactly. But so Schofield never actually got that award because by this stage, Adidas were kind of more on board with the idea of it being an Australian thing. And so they ended up pulling their sponsorship. And, you know, so Harry Edgar and Open Rugby just like walked away from the award and it, you know, stopped being handed out, which like, it's just another piece of evidence for your chief awards for the game should be owned by the game, not like a media company or a, you know, yeah. a shoe brand, you know, it's it's just- A bloke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the award shouldn't be at risk of going under because, you know, someone wants to stop funding it or a newspaper goes broke <laughs> or, you know, whatever else it might be. I challenge you on that. What's more rugby league than the awards being at risk of going under with everything else? <laughs> it, it is very rugby league. I, I can't deny that. And then so it was revived uh, at the end of the 90s and Schofield was later given his award retroactively. And then throughout the 2000s, you're getting those same issues. So Andy Farrell got it one year and there was a furor from Australians saying, well, he's not playing the best comp. How can he be judged the best player? I think that's the exact time it moved to Anaheim and become Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah. I think by that point, 
there is a very legitimate argument that you needed to be playing in the NRL to truly be considered the best player in the world. Like, if we're going to go back to the NBL comparison, the best player needs to be playing in the NBA. Yeah. Against Chris Mullen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Andy Farrell was a class player who had a long, decorated career. So I'm not saying that was a farcical award. You know, I understand the arguments against him getting it. Where it became farcical was the award just suddenly becoming the award for best international player of the year. Just changing the parameters. Yeah. So Tommy Makinson from England won it a couple of years ago. And there was a predictable outcry that he'd won it. And then there was this smug reaction from certain online types who were just like, look, they don't understand that it's actually for international performances. So this outcry is ridiculous. And it's like, well, they changed the grounds of the Pulitzer Prize to reward sales in adult contemporary. Like people are going to be confused and the award's going (laughs) to like, you know, it's not going to make sense anymore. And I think when you do that to an award like the Golden Boot, it doesn't make sense. And people associate it with rewarding the best player in the game that year. And now it doesn't do that anymore. Yeah, stupid. If you're going to do that, just change it to something else. Like Yeah. Platinum boot. Yeah. But so that's the current state of the golden boot. So I think it needs to go back to the old ways personally. I think there's been too much water under the bridge for the golden boot. Mm. I think start again. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a better idea. It's a shame though, because like, I remember when Stacey Jones won it, it was cool. Yeah. But anyway, we've gone way into the future. Let's go back to the 80s and the English domestic game. And I guess the byword for English rugby league in this era is Wigan. What are your memories of that Wigan team as a kid? Awesome, yeah. I just remember that they were, people would talk about them here. Yeah. And they're so much better than everybody else. They're like Manly and the Broncos combined. They're Canberra. You know, they're so good. No one can beat them. Martin Fire scored 15 tries in, in one quarter. Yeah. You hear it all the time. I was aware of soccer existing. I knew names of like Liverpool and that, but I just assumed that Wigan were the biggest, most important club in English sport. Like I had no idea that, you know, they were essentially. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they had cool jerseys. They, yeah. Even the name's cool. Yeah. So won the championship in 1987 and then from 90 through 96, won the 85 Challenge Cup and then eight in a row from 88 to 95. In that period, they also won the World Club Challenge three times. So the inaugural one in 1987, and then again in 1991 and 1994. So I think anyone listening to this is familiar with the deeds of that Wigan team. So we don't have to talk at length about what they did. But let's start with the 1980 season with them actually getting relegated for the first time in their history and being wow. at a you know super low point. It's one of the best recoveries from that, from yeah. 80 to 85. God. Yeah, yeah. Pretty remarkable. Uh, and it took someone like Morris Lindsay coming in to, you know, have a bit of business now and to get them back on the right track. I'd really recommend as a source a documentary series that you can find on YouTube called Up and Under. It was uh, produced, I think, in about 1991. And it's Lindsay at his best. And it really gives an insight into the way Wigan worked and how they were able to, you know, go on that run and then also the financial problems that they got themselves into at the end of it. So it's called Up and Under. And yeah, it's available on YouTube. That was certainly the benchmark for the term glamour club. Yeah, exactly. And it was just the glamour destination where any good player would eventually find their way 
to Wigan. So, you know, it started with Ellery Hanley uh, in 1985 and, you know, it just went from there. So when Ellery went to Leeds in 91, Leeds set a then record transfer fee of £250,000. To replace him, Wigan brought in Martin Afire and almost doubled that transfer fee with £440,000 being the mark for Afire. The transfer fee system is crazy considering they're always broke. Yeah, and that was a big issue. And we're going to touch on that a bit later in this episode. And those transfer fees were one of the things that like really ended the run and put Wigan into financial trouble and the league as a whole. Like The economics weren't there to support clubs paying such massive transfer fees. So in 1990, Wigan had announced a £280,000 profit. By 1993, they lost £300,000. So the transfer fees were part of that. Also, they developed a new stand that you know had put them in the hole. And that Up and Under documentary I mentioned, one of the really cool parts is they're talking about trying to acquire a fire. And Morris Lindsay goes to you know one of the directors and said, look, this is the situation. At that point, Witness uh, were asking for £700,000. And Lindsay was like, well, we can't pay that. Um, but he went to the director and said, look, I know we're tied up in building this new stand. I know there's not a lot of spare money. Have we got the money for Hanley yet? Has that come in? Oh, yeah, it has. And that's gone into the stand. Okay. <laughs> you know, we need someone to replace him. So what do you think? I think we need to get him. And obviously they did. How much money was sunk into this bloody stand? And it was become a Tesco five years later. Yeah, yeah, I know. So that's pretty crazy. So by 1996, the debts had mounted to $3 million, or £3 million, sorry. And so the board of directors decided the answer was to sell Central Park, their longtime home. And Wigan Athletic, the soccer club, were going to buy it. And it was going to be like a shared arrangement with the Wigan Rugby League Club. But then the Tesco offer came in which um, it, I think it was $12.5 million was the That was a late figure anyway. I'm not sure what the final deal was. There was a lot of furor among Wigan fans, a lot of petitions, because the original plan was to sell it to Tesco's, move the team to the Bolton Wanderers soccer ground while they built a new stadium. So that was going to potentially take the team out of the city for two or three years. So they eventually got the new stadium. Tesco's agreed to let them play at Central Park until 1999 while they were building the new stadiums. So they got a couple of years out of it without having to leave the city. <laughs> I'd like to do a um, a bibliography of all the weird companies that have been mentioned in the series. <laughs> well, I, From Just Jeans <laughs> to Hard Rock Cafe to Tesco's. I went back and listened to our interview with Mike Mehol Wood in the lead up to this. And I just love the way he's so casually like, Central Parks of Tesco's now, another grounds in Asada or whatever. You know, it was just, you know, football fans just rattling off what supermarket their ground now is. Terrible. But so by the time all this had happened, so, you know, 1996, 97, when they were negotiating the sale of Central Park, the run had already come to an end. So they famously didn't make the final of that Challenge Cup we discussed with Mike a few weeks ago. They, you know, won the 1996 championship, but, you know, kind of were on the decline. It's funny that it was at this point that that cross-code battle with the Bath Rugby Union Club took place. 
one of the best days. <laughs> so Wigan won the rugby league game very easily, and then Bath won the rugby union fixture still pretty easily, but less so. Well, I believe the scores were eighty to two in the rugby league and forty four to twenty two or something, so, like, something that. like that. You know, it was um, yeah, but not fairly comprehensive, mate. Yeah, <laughs> but the point I wanted to bring up is you wonder, like you know, so this was just after. Union had gone professional. Wigan were on the decline. I would have loved to see that match like, you know, five years before when they were at their real height to see like whether they they would have actually beaten them in Rugby Union. And at the same time that that was played, Morris Lindsay was being accused of wanting to merge the two codes. So your your long-awaited hybrid could have become a reality. (laughs) (laughs) Do these administrators learn nothing from dealing with rugby league people every day? Like, I mean, if you change the letterhead, there's going to be a um, petition, <laughs> let alone merge the codes. Thankfully, that didn't happen. That's basically the Wigan story as much as I want to tell it in this episode. I want to now take us into the 90s and see what was happening with the English game as a whole. So Morris Lindsay had come in as league boss in the early 90s, so he moved on from Wigan. And it was a time where change was really needed. David Oxley, who we mentioned in the first part of this chapter, he'd been brought in to replace Bill Fallowfield. So Fallowfield is, of course, probably most famous now for being the one that brought in limited tackle football. So he was something of an innovator in his time. But by the mid-70s, the game was stagnating and he was viewed as a dinosaur. So you needed this dynamic innovative David Oxley coming in and he did bring in some innovation so in Frank Morehouse's book he notes that one of these innovations was the introduction of Chapeltown Road's first computer in 1983 <laughs> uh, I'm picturing it being like um 2001 a space odyssey when they're, <laughs> they're all grunting around the obelisk you know Um, Bashing bashing sticks. I'm being really selective in highlighting that. It's not really fair to Oxley or what Frank Morehouse was saying about him. It was just one of those things that was funny and I wanted to put it in. It would be hilarious though, like the first computer in um, (laughs) Northern England. What's the deal then, like, lad? (laughs) So Oxley had done a lot to, you know, we talked about his financial success in the late 70s into the early 80s. And he'd done a lot to move the game forward. But by the early 90s, it was viewed that his time had come as well and more drastic change was needed. So they entered the 1990s with some positive signs. So crowds were on a real high, like there was, you know, some record attendances and they, you know, risen quite rapidly, like averages of up, you know, 2000 in the space of a couple of years. This is tempered by the fact that that average was still under 8,000 a game. So it's not going to be enough to overcome those earlier issues. But the ground's only held 12,000, so... Yeah, yeah. Most well, of them. But yeah, so like, you know, Wigan were averaging 14,000, 15,000, but, you know, not many others cracking 10,000 regularly. It's worth noting that those atmospheres would be five times better than a full Sydney football stadium. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so that was one positive thing. The amateur rugby league, Bala, merged with the RFL. That was viewed as a positive sign. There was, you know, a new TV deal that was improved. So the positive signs were there, but there were still big issues. 
Those transfer fees were one of them. Clubs were spending money they didn't have. But more to that, there's still that same lack of planning and vision and the same cycle of going down one direction and then reverting course shortly after. So part of this happened when Lindsay announced that the bottom three sides in the third division would be cut because the game was going back to two major divisions. And this led to one of those clubs, Chorley, you know, being outraged and said, well, they gave us the go and said, you know, formulate a five-year plan. We're now four years into that plan and they're cutting us. That's not fair. Which I can understand Chorley's complaint about that. You know, you're given some goalposts and then they get moved before you have a chance to kick a goal through them. But at the same time, chairman of the Rugby Football League, Rodney Walker, said the situation is unsustainable. It's only a matter of time before you go bust. It doesn't take it a genius to understand why change is necessary and urgent when you're losing £3 million a year. Who's losing, Chorley or the league? The league. Right. And more to the point, like when you're trying to grow the game and build the profile, I don't want to be seen to be too harsh to the good folk of Chorley, but I mean, it sounds like a made-up name from some like middling British sitcom. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like... Is Chorley really the change we need to really get the game going? I think you're going to get more complaints for this than I know. The, uh, the witness thing. You know there's like some some old guy in a blazer, you know, a quiff and massive mutton chops who's still there like, you know, with a pint going, Null to care for poor old Chorley. <laughs> I love those guys. And this is kind of the bind that English Rugby League is in because you are so dependent on these traditional communities and true rugby league people and the heartland you're dependent on them but to grow the game you kind of need to outgrow them and how do you do that without upsetting the true fans and risking losing them and not gaining the new ones well i think you can see from the nrl the growth of the nrl a true fan will always stay Mm. so i mean you're going to lose a few um a few fair weather types to soft sports you know like you know so be it but these trolley guys they would stay because they'd be true rugby league people Yeah, and that's the other problem. Like, there just weren't enough of these true rugby league people to sustain the game as it was. And in October 1994, Tony Collins in his book Rugby League in 20th Century Britain noted that only four of 16 of the top flight clubs had made a profit that year and that 17 of the professional clubs were technically insolvent. Which, I mean, even to Australian rugby league clubs, that's just like, yeah, well, that's the business model, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That actually doesn't sound as grim as you might think it would be. I think we need to take the term business out of business model for a league. Mm. Just call it model. Yeah. There's no actual business to it. It's just uh, cash incineration. Yeah, and I don't think that is limited to rugby league. And I can't remember who said it, but you know, someone said, look, rugby league isn't a business. You run it like a business. You have to be professional running it properly, but... You know, like you go back to that Washington football owner who said, how do you make a a small fortune in sport? Start with a large fortune. You know, like these problems (laughs) like cut way beyond just rugby league. And so the other issue was that like rugby league was just not as cool as it might be. And someone underscored this by, um, oh, this was actually Gary Schofield's book, Rugby League Masterpieces. In his forward to that, he wrote, While the Australians used Tina Turner and a budget of millions of dollars to promote the game, 
We use Cliff Richard and a budget of a few thousand pounds. The difference says it all. <laughs> That's a knock on Cliff Richard. I don't mind Cliff. It's quite a big star. When you're viewed as less cool as your backing band, that's not a good sign. <laughs> but Tina Turner was like an aging rocker. Yeah. Like, and he's an aging rocker. That's the thing. That's where I'll defend the use of Cliff Richard. Like Tina Turner was kind of lightning in a bottle. You know, she had some big hits in the 80s, but it wasn't like she was like on the cutting edge of, you know, pop music or anything like that. You know, she was called the rugby league grandma and, and that sort of stuff. So I'll give them a pass. I mainly wanted to bring it up for that photo I sent you of Cliff Richard with Martin Afire and Sean Edwards on a London double-decker bus. <laughs> That's going on the uh, social medias yeah. for everybody out there. So, But do you know the origin of meeting Cliff Richard? Was it a chance encounter at an airport, as is the Australian rugby league style? Yeah, no, I think it was probably a strategy. And, and it was probably, no doubt they looked at Australia's success with Tina Turner and thought, well, what ageing rocker can <laughs> you know we make work for us? Well, I think the ultimate would have been Scylla Black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, surely at some point that would have been tried. I think I mean, it might have even read like in our um, 95 World Cup episode that she was performing at a game or something like that. You know who would have been really good? Shirley Bassey. Yeah, yeah, another good one. Or like just get Sean Edwards to lean on Heather. That was of its time. Like <laughs> M people would have been great. <laughs> God, he needs his own episode. Can we please do a Sean Edwards episode? <laughs> he looks like a Guy Ritchie bit player in, in that photo with Cliff Rich and Run and Fire. <laughs> so that's basically the state of English Rugby League when Super League came calling. But what we haven't done is talk about another event that had a massive impact on the state of Rugby League. And that's what you heard me talk about in our opening monologue was the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. When I think about this to this day, you know, I've watched the documentaries on it and everything, it's probably one of the most tragic things, the most unnecessary things, and it just, uh, I don't know, I get goosebumps when I think about it now. It makes my heart heavy every time I think about it. I hate it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've obviously been reading a lot about Hillsborough and a lot of the other disasters which we're going to talk about. And if you're wondering why rugby league is relevant to this or why Hillsborough is relevant to our story. I think it'll be made clear by the end of this little discussion, but it's just unfathomable that you could go to a, a sporting game and not come home. Not even not come home, to die in such a manner. Yeah, yeah. So in preparation for this, I rewatched the 30 for 30 on Hillsborough which I would recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, it's on KO if you haven't seen it and want to check it out. It is, like, brutal and heart-wrenching. And, it, yeah, like, it's a very hard but necessary watch. But when you watch it, and this isn't a criticism of it because it was a deliberate choice to do it that way, and I understand the reasons for doing so. But when you watch that documentary, it's so laser-focused on Hillsborough, that if you watched that and knew nothing else, you would think that Hillsborough was this one-off, unprecedented freak tragedy. There's been dozens of them. Yeah. The reality is there had been multiple catastrophes leading up to Hillsborough. And Justice Taylor, who you know wrote the Taylor Report, which is going to reshape rugby league, as we'll see a bit later, he 
opens that by saying, it's a depressing and chastening fact that mine is the ninth official report covering crowd safety and control at football grounds. After eight previous reports, it seems astounding that 95 people, uh, and one died later, so it was 96 total, could die from overcrowding before the very eyes of those controlling the event. He then goes on to list some of those prior reports. So there was a report in 1946 following a disaster at Bolton Wanderers where overcrowding caused 33 deaths. 1971, you saw Ibrox where 66 people died, 66 uh, Rangers fans in Scotland died. It's sickening. Then in 1985, in the same month, you had the Bradford City Fire, which killed 50-odd people. Earlier that month, you had the Heisel tragedy, which killed 30-something people. So this had happened over and over and over. And what Justice Taylor said at the start, you know, this is the ninth official report. When you have like, you know, eight prior reports, but they're for kind of, you know, near misses. You could understand, you know, it, it's still like, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. still incompetent. It's still like negligent, but you can understand it as, you know, something that happens in an organization. But when these reports are documenting like large scale death, like how does it get to this? I mean, if this was Australia, one person died in a sporting event, they shut the whole nation yeah. down and find out what happened. Not 33, 50, um, you know. Like you're looking at over 250, 300 people dying at sports games in England in a 20-year period. Like it is just unfathomable. To bring a bit of levity to the situation, Rabbi Lee's got the right idea by having um, you know, one person every four seasons. It's nice <laughs> and safe. <laughs> one bloke I feel really like it's brutal. Um, Kenny Dalgleish, the Liverpool legend, he was actually on the books at Celtic in 1971 and was at Ibrox for that game. He was then playing for Liverpool at Heisel and then was their manager at Hillsborough in 1989. So, you know, he, he was at three games where a total of, you know, 200 people died. Like, how do you go on, you know, from that? And that actually like really shook him like in the immediate aftermath of Hillsborough he attempted to get to the funeral of everyone that died and you know he said that on one day he went to four funerals a couple of years after Hillsborough he ended up quitting as Liverpool manager because he felt that he couldn't make decisions and you know it's something that like later he said a documentary wanted him to go back to Hillsborough and he wouldn't go back like he just can't go back PTSD mate I mean yeah there's no shame in that yeah but as we've said, Hillsborough wasn't the first. And the Bradford City one is the one that I really want to talk about. So this was in 1985. Tony Collins mentioned it in my chat with him. So the most common story is that a man was smoking a cigarette. He threw it on the ground to try to put it out. It fell between the floorboards of the stand and went down into an area under the stadium where an amount of litter had built up over the years. It's not in the official report that it was a man smoking a cigarette who dropped it. So that's not verified. But what is verified is that a fire was caused because there was a degree of buildup of, you know, rubbish and debris under the stand that had been there for years. Like they found a newspaper from 1968 Christ. and this happened in 1985. 
And again, there's multiple warning signs. So the council had, you know, sent the owners of Bradford City like a warning that they needed to clear the debris and that it was a fire risk. And the talk of fire risk had been built into these, you know, the so-called green guides, which were, you know, reports on stadium safety and, you know, similar kind of reports and reviews into, you know, what could potentially happen. And in fact, even this isn't like a near miss thing. There were 86 grandstand fires between the years 1977 and 1983. Insane. And like, I don't think they caused any loss of life, but... It was clear that this was a possibility. This could happen. It's just foreign to us that you would go to a sporting event and die. Like It's just the cavalier attitude towards life and death by these clubs is just unbelievable. And this was the big takeaway from Bradford. It was a lesson that tragically wasn't learned in time for Hillsborough. But what came out of Bradford was that this could have happened anywhere. So in terms of soccer clubs, 58 of the, the clubs in the, you know, top, three divisions or or whatever that would be, three or four divisions, 58 of those had their grounds built between 1889 and 1910. So there were these aging venues all over the country that posed these same fire risks and, you know, they weren't fit for purpose and it was a disaster waiting to happen. Well, no, it wasn't a disaster waiting to happen. It was a disaster that kept happening and nothing was changing. Aging's a euphemism, like 25 years is aging, 100 years is antique. Well, it's funny you say that because it made me think of in the furor a few years ago with the demolishing of the SFS and someone at the SCG Trust referencing Hillsborough to say why, you know, they need us to knock it down. And I just thought that was so crass. That was infuriating to me to evoke that in such different circumstances. Hmm. But so that was the main takeaway from Bradford and then Hillsborough, that this could happen anywhere, that the problem had to be addressed. And that gets you to, you know, what the problems were. And it wasn't just the safety of the stadiums. It was the growing problem of hooliganism in the 80s had caused the stadium's architecture to be, you know, amended and all these different policies coming in to try to combat hooliganism actually having an adverse effect on safety. Well, making um, pens, I think your notes said, yeah, cages for these animals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, anyone who's watched that um, 30 for 30 or knows about the causes for Hillsborough and the aftermath of it knows that the actions of police and the media in blaming hooligans were like absolutely shameful and criminalizing the victims by, you know, doing these blood tests for alcohol and checking their criminal records and, you know, going out of their way to make it look as if soccer fans were the problem. They had essentially caused this. Okay, that was shameful and it wasn't the cause of Hillsborough. But the fact is that hooliganism, you know, was a massive concern. And, you know, we talked about it earlier about rugby league being seen as the family-friendly alternative. There's nothing worse than soccer hooligans. It's embarrassing how dumb these people are to take a beautiful sport, you know, the beautiful game they call it, because it's you know, all that skill and grace and turn it into like Neanderthals. So the report into the Bradford City Fire was done by um, a man named Justice Popplewell, very English name. The inquiry for Bradford was actually a dual inquiry on the very same day. There was a riot at Birmingham City that ended up causing the collapse of a wall and a 15-year-old boy at his first um, soccer 
game, like died, you know, on the same day. But Popperwell went out of his way to say hooliganism is a problem, but it's not soccer's problem. It's society's problem. These are violent Mm. people. If soccer goes away, the hooliganism isn't going to go away, you know, like it's an outlet, but it's not because of soccer. It's just these are, you know, violent people. Well, it's just parasites attaching themselves onto the largest organism, isn't it? Yeah. And again, there is that kind of um, socioeconomic element that we can't touch on, but there's a really great documentary on the birth of the English Premier League that starts with Hillsborough and all the changes that necessitate. And they were talking about Margaret Thatcher having a go at hooligans and someone, you know, going to a, these are your hooligans, Mrs. Thatcher. So the problem was much broader than soccer. And I think that needs to be made clear. But the hooligans were there and Heisel, that was because of hooliganism and 14 Liverpool fans ended up going to jail for manslaughter over that. Just to take a sport so seriously, it's ridiculous. And the way it changed going to a soccer game. So, you know, we mentioned the pens and, you know, the perimeter fences, the crowd segregation, police escorts to and from transport. They look like East Germany in like 88. Yeah. The away team would have to wait until all the home fans had cleared so they'd be, you know, able to safely leave the ground. Like sometimes you'd have to wait around for half an hour after full time before you were allowed to exit the ground. Well, I remember when I moved to London and I said something about going to a game and then the bar girl I was working with was like that I couldn't sit with the other fans or something. And I was like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're split. Yeah. Like I was like from planet Mars because I didn't know that. Yeah. The drain on police resources. Like the Taylor Report mentioned one game at Norwich that saw 33% of the total police force stationed at a soccer game. If you're going to be doing crime, it's a good time. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Um, But this statement from the Taylor Report really stood out to me. Witnessing the full florid exercise taking place every Saturday afternoon nowadays makes one wonder how anyone could have contemplated going to such lengths to facilitate the watching of football. But nobody did. It just grew. And when I think of that, like, why would anybody go (laughs) to a a soccer match? If, If I knew that I had to, like, catch a special train i'm gonna be <laughs> herded into the ground with police like escorting me every step of the way german shepherds biting your ass <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when i get there i'm gonna be like herded in to a cage the general state of the grounds was so poor like the amenities so poor <laughs> and this was true of rugby league grounds too you know mike mentioned bradford's ground not having any female toilets i can't remember if it was the taylor report or the Popawa report but One of those reports said, you know, there were so few toilets that people would just piss in the terraces. And, Mm. you know, and like when you're resorting to this kind of behavior, when you are treated like a criminal, like going to games, like it's got. (laughs) But another thing, they don't sell alcohol there. So they've all got to go to pubs at Mm. nine in the morning and skull 50 shots and be blind when they walk in. Um, You can't even go and have a relaxing beer. That's how backwards it is. Yeah, exactly. And as Popperwell says, like it's kind of counterproductive as well. In his report, he wrote, they may create a worse standard of behavior because the fans feel that they are being treated as violent people. But so with all of this, with decrepit stadiums, with hooliganism and the attempts to combat it actually exacerbating, you know, the concerns about public safety, it was clear that like it couldn't go on. So after Hillsborough, 
some very strong recommendations came down that we're going to like change the way people in England watch sport. So the first of those was for all seating, which had been, you know, mooted before. It was mentioned in the Popperwell report and that met with a lot of resistance with the sentiment that, you know, my granddad stood here with my dad, you know, my dad stood here with me, you know, I should be able to stand here with my son. So that kind of like nostalgia and it's like, well, yeah, but yeah, you can stand there on the bodies of your fellow fans if you want. Yeah, but yeah, I, I know, yeah. In defense of soccer hooligans, it's a social issue from the very class system that England's built on. Yeah. It's like if you've got nothing, your only thing is your tribe of people that love this club. Exactly. These are your hooligans, Mrs. Thatcher. But then to take the other side, in Popperwell's report, he mentioned some of the issues with all seating and, and that could be counterproductive as well. He said... A lot of them, it seems, do not wish to sit down. They wish to stand. They wish to stand, apparently, because there is, for them, a special atmosphere in being on the terraces. If seating is provided for them, they may well tip back the seats and stand in front of them, then stand on the seats, and finally rip up the seats and use them as weapons. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that case, it's time to finish up, because... Yeah, like, I don't think that is a natural progression of things, or it shouldn't be. (laughs) And... So these recommendations that were going to go beyond all seating, they were also going to go beyond just soccer. And the Taylor Report specifically mentioned rugby league as another sport where this could potentially happen, and especially with the, you know, decaying stadiums. So he visited a number of sporting venues in the course of compiling his report. The only rugby league uh, venue he went to was Salford. Nevertheless, rugby league was included into these broader recommendations and changes were going to have to be made. Well, rugby league had the old stadiums, right? They were just smaller. Yeah, and this was the issue that had come up in the Popperwell report into Bradford. Popperwell, again, mentioned rugby league specifically and said that it could happen at another sports ground or, you know, at another sport. So one of the issues with Bradford was that At the time, there was this designation system in place where only certain grounds were designated. And if you were designated, then you had to meet these standards. But if you weren't designated, then, you know, you weren't subject to the same standard. So Popperwell recommended that all grounds be designated and, again, specifically mentioned rugby league. It's got a criteria feel to it. Yeah. Those recommendations, after Bradford saw Central Park's capacity halved, so you're already seeing a pinch there. So there is this sense of unfairness that the Taylor Report was forcing rugby league clubs to make drastic changes when they weren't getting the same crowds and they weren't having the same trouble at their games. I'd rather it be too soon than too late though. Yeah. And I think there is a tendency among rugby league fans to view the slightest inconvenience as a criminal conspiracy designed to finish us off once and for good, you know? What do you mean a slight? Um, that's part of the DNA of the rugby league fan. But, We're born with it. But the reality is it wasn't just rugby league being affected by this. So it was rugby union as well. It was cricket. It was speedway, you know, and it extended to indoor venues as well in some capacity. So I'm sure the the number of sports affected by the Taylor Report is endless. And, you know, you're probably getting some local softball league complaining now about the Taylor Report, you know, ruining them. (laughs) 
But there is like a sense of unfairness, you know? So there's this like cruel irony in the fact that soccer clubs were branching out into rugby league because, you know, rugby league offered them a hooligan free alternative. There was this window slightly open, you know, no matter how overblown you might argue that window was, it was a slight opportunity that was like crushed by these issues with soccer forcing all these changes, those changes being one of the driving forces behind the creation of the Premier League. The Premier League then, you know, coming along and just crushing all before it, you know. So mm-hmm. rugby league just gets caught up in this. And Ian McCartney, who was a British parliamentarian and a rugby league man, in a Commons debate in 1995, he argued this. It's an outrage that the Taylor Report has bankrupted the game of rugby league. As a result of horrific incidents that took place in soccer, there was a need to change the law in Britain to make sporting stadiums safer. We all supported that. The report also covered rugby league, but no resources were given to bring its clubs up to the standards set out in that report. In the intervening years, football has received £130 million. Until a few weeks ago, rugby league had been given a paltry £2 million. And it begrudges them doing a blanket rule. You can't just go like, it's a blanket rule except for rugby league. You yeah, guys yeah. are sweet. But I mean, yeah, give them a few bucks to uh, cover it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in fairness, later in the 90s, there was a scheme where ground funds were made available. And, you know, in that, they specifically said rugby league clubs are, you know, invited to apply. So I haven't looked into who got money, but I'm sure money was given to rugby league clubs for ground redevelopments at that point later in the 90s. But certainly in the wake of Hillsborough and the Taylor Report, rugby league didn't get the support that it needed. And they were forced to make all these changes at a time when, you know, finances already weren't great. It's going to add that extra layer of pressure on the game to, you know, get moving. And to their credit, a lot of these changes were mandated, but the Rugby Football League got to work in, you know, addressing the situation. And so in 1994, they released a blueprint for the future called Framing the Future. So this document was released. So similar to the Premier League being born in some part out of Hillsborough, you know, obviously there's the big Rupert Murdoch element of it all in the creation of the Premier League, which is another kind of irony in terms of our story. But certainly in the wake of English soccer kind of cleaning its act up and and looking at growing the game out of the necessity of the Taylor Report, rugby league were wanting to do the same thing. People like Morris Lindsay were saying that this is something they realistically should have done 20 years ago, was to put together like a far-reaching vision for rugby league future. Mm. So it was produced by a sports marketing firm called GSM and you know, one of the basic recommendations or what they noted was that there were too many clubs in too small an area, (laughs) which, (laughs) I mean, we can see that in Sydney here, but like you're still dealing with that exact problem, like a quarter century on. And it's... You've got to admire the resilience of rugby league clubs just to stay alive. Yeah. But yeah, so basically Framing the Future came in and... I read it, I obtained a copy, and I was surprised by how much of it was, like the detail of this, you know, the stadium requirements and that sort of stuff. So I questioned how much was actual vision for the future and how much was, you know, mandated by, you know, these new recommendations. Mm. And the version I got, so there was a revision made, published in 1996, 
So after the Murdoch money had come in, part of those revisions that 50% of the money the clubs were going to get from News Limited each year was to go towards ground improvements until the point that they had made it to the minimum standards, which just as an aside, one of the recommendations was the formation of a minimum standards committee. And I understand the idea that you need to get up to a minimum standard, but there just seems to be like a negativity in calling it the minimum standards committee. (laughs) You should call it the Standing Improvement Council, not the minimum standards committee. And some of those minimum standards are realistically things that should have been addressed, you know, some years before. So one of the guidelines was that there can't be too big a slope on your football field. And I think in our interview with Mike, he mentioned that at Bradford, you couldn't see one side of the field from the other side. You know, so so big was the, the hill in the middle. So that was one. Um, slopes shall not be excessive. Goalposts and corner flags should be a professional manufacturer. Like, <laughs> Given how old the grounds were, like, make sure your penny farthing racks are yeah. uh, yeah, up to scratch. Uh, at grounds where a running track bounds the pitch, the point at which it meets the turf should not present a danger to the players. Remember when running tracks were a common occurrence around? Yeah, yeah, hours? totally. We'd all just go, yeah, no, don't worry about the 40 yards of red. <laughs> Between the first row, we'll just uh, deal with it. There must be safe passage for players and officials from their dressing rooms to the playing field. So all these like guidelines that you'd think would be inbuilt into any <laughs> professional sporting organization. Is that up there with the Phil Lada recommendations? But it was, you know, a move in a positive direction. As Tony Collins said, some of those recommendations are still unfulfilled 25 years on. So it's not, you know, it's not a complete pass. But even just simple things like structure of administration. So the idea was to take power out of the hands of boards and have a proper administrative structure in place with chief executive, financial controller, etc. Boards have been at the forefront of nearly every rugby league problem for 120 years. (laughs) But so what all this meant and where we're going to end this episode is that when Super League came calling in 1995, the English Rugby League didn't have any option but to go with Super League. So their already dicey financial position was made even dicier by the after effects of Hillsborough. I mean, you can argue the unfairness of a soccer tragedy impacting on Rugby League, but like soccer, Rugby League was being dragged into the present by this tragedy. And so what the arrival of Super League brought was a chance to really take that next step and move into the future. So that is what we're going to discuss in the third and final part of this chapter. This was another one of my favorite ones to research, like just such interesting history and history that I could only really touch on. I would have loved to go really in depth with this. So I'm sure there's plenty of our listeners that can deliver a lot of insight to us on many things we talked about in this episode. So I would love to hear from you, but um, this was a a really good one for me, Andy. Well, it's heavy duty, mate, especially that last uh, half hour. But you've got to remember that we're, you know, a couple of Aussie blokes that just love rugby league and, um, you know, our insights on Premier League are going to be from our perspective. So our English listeners that are, you know, we're corresponding with more and more now, which is great. Please pull us up on anything that we've uh, 
Made a faux pas on there. Yeah. And that's a special invitation to the good folk of Chorley. (laughs) Uh, But on that note, we will get out of here. So thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. And we will be back with the concluding episode of Chapter 28 for you soon. So uh, speak to you later. Cheers.